0: Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not so big questions from the people qualified to give them, with your host, Orion Kelly. Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. At the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more and ask why. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education, and growth opportunities through open, honest, and inquisitive conversations. In this episode, we explore the topic of anxiety and ask the question, what is anxiety and how damaging can it be? My guest, Dr. Grant Blaschke, is the lead clinical advisor at Beyond Blue. Grant, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, great to be on your show, mate.
0: Grant, before we get down to the nitty gritty of anxiety, can you tell me a bit about your role with Beyond Blue and... What else you do?
1: Yeah, so look, I actually work as a GP still, uh, which keeps me honest, and um, you stay very in touch with sort of how people are managing day-to-day issues in their life, and I'm also the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue, which is really giving clinical opinions on Um, any issues that are to do with mental illness and quite a lot of engagement with the media and podcasts such as yourself. So um, yeah, really enjoying it and a great crew here at Beyond Blue.
0: When we think about Beyond Blue, we may think about depression, but I feel like anxiety is really coming to the fore more recently. So let's start at the start. What is anxiety and what are the main causes?
1: Yeah, well, it's really interesting because anxiety is one of those words that we use in everyday language you know, oh, I'm really anxious that St Kilda's not going to win their football match or a bit anxious about a job meeting. And and then on the other hand, when we talk about anxiety conditions more in a medical sense, they're a bit more than everyday stress. So, of course, it's it's normal to have anxiety throughout life and, and all of us do. I guess with an anxiety condition, and there's a, a number of sort of subtypes we can talk about that anxiety is really starting to interfere with their day-to-day life. So, you know, it might be interfering with their capacity to work or their capacity to sort of manage things at home. And it's really, the central feature of it is pretty much an overwhelming sense of usually fear and, and stress. And as we'll talk about with some of the different types of anxiety, you know, sometimes panic attacks or avoidance of situations. So, it's not a trivial issue. Um, some 2 million Australians in a year are experiencing an anxiety condition. So I'm sure a lot of people listening are saying, yep, I know about that. Or yep, someone in my family has that. It's it's really common.
0: I feel like there's a general perception that you either have anxiety or you don't. And unless it's severe, you're fine and you should just toughen up and get on with it. But that's not the case, is it Grant? So let's let's talk about some of the different types and degrees of anxiety. Can you tell us about those different types and degrees? And should all forms be taken seriously?
1: Yeah, so you raised some really good points there. So we've still got a lot of stigma in the community, um, you know, where uh, people think, oh, now look, it's not a real condition, you know, just uh, not be a bit stronger. Um, and, you know, certainly there's a lot of stigma out there about it just being sort of sign of weakness and you could just sort of willpower your way out of it. But I've got to tell you, like as a GP, when you see people who are experiencing an anxiety condition, it's really not something they choose. And, and, you know, their system really goes into overdrive a bit. And and I'll give you a sense of it. A, A common type of anxiety we see, people get panic attacks. And these can often be in, you know, situations where they're under stress, it might be, about travelling on public transport or planes or might be about public speaking or sometimes, you know, they, they don't like going into cinemas and things because they're always sort of feeling like, how am I going to get out of here? And the problem with it is that if, if you sort of let those fears uh, take control over time, they start to sort of shrink their comfort zone, shrink their world where they actually feel safe and you know, said so like, oh, no, I don't think I'll go out to that party. I don't think I'll go into the city. And so we work really hard with people. We, we have an approach we call cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT for short, where we get people to try and unearth some of these sort of unrealistic negative thoughts and, and you know, start to expand their comfort zone again. So that's that's an example of one we call panic attacks and it's one of the anxiety types.
0: You mentioned the stigma attached to anxiety, I'm really concerned by it because I think a lot of people that may suffer from it, could be receiving help, assistance and resources, are holding back due to a fear. For example, a fear I won't be hireable or I won't be dateable or I won't be lovable or I won't be this or that. You know, it's a concern to me personally because a diagnosis can really change your life but we seem to be stuck in this stigma rut of how will this impact my overall life? So there's clearly still a stigma attached to anxiety. But in your view as a GP, how has the way we view, diagnose and treat anxiety changed over time?
1: Yeah, such a great question. Look, there's a few things. So I have this lovely natural experiment in my family because my dad was a GP in the 1960s. He actually went on to become a psychiatrist. But when I talked to him about, you know, what's it like in 1960s, 1970s, being a GP, you know, how did people present with mental health issues? And there's no way people would come in and go, oh, I think I've got anxiety or I think I've got depression. You know, they'd come in and say, oh, I'm tired or I'm fighting with my spouse or um, I can't sleep or they'd come in with physical symptoms. So I think we've seen a huge shift in what we call mental health literacy. It means the community's sort of knowledge about these issues has really improved a lot. You know, that's partially from, you know, radio shows, from uh, prominent people. You know, I always say one footy player coming out talking about mental health's worth about 100 professors, right? Yeah. Resonates with the community. The other thing is we did some work at Beyond Blue. And and we found out that actually the Australian community, generally people are a lot less judgmental about anxiety than you might imagine. So a lot of people are having anxiety to think, oh gosh, if I raise it with my employer or, you know, I raise it with a friend, they're going to think, oh gosh, you know, can't you just get over it? But we found that 90% of people are actually very forgiving about it. They get it. They're like, right. Yeah. I hope you get it sorted out. They're actually pretty kind about it. Now, Having said that, you know, if you're in a workplace and you've raised the workplace issue, it is a bit of a judgment call about whether or not you want to raise it. Uh, We have a whole section here at Beyond Blue called Heads Up, and their main task is working with mental health issues in the workplace. Now, if you're in a pretty stodgy workplace and and you really think, you know, look, if I raise this with the boss, you know, I'm sort of going to... Um, impair my ability to get promoted or I'm going to be judged a bit, you might decide, listen, it's not a great thing for me to talk about. And sometimes when the patients come to me and they need a couple of days off and I might just write, you know, medical condition, we don't have to necessarily go head on. Yes. But I guess where we're heading to, though, and there's some fantastic workplaces, I go out and speak at some of them, where the leadership is really changing the culture of mental health. So they'll... You know, they'll get in a speaker at, you know, one of the update lunches. They'll actually – having bosses and leaders that talk a bit about their own vulnerabilities makes a huge difference. Now, they don't have to bare their soul, right, you know, but just to even talk about some of their challenges and how things aren't always easy. And the other thing to remember is when someone goes off on some sort of mental health sick leave or is going through a bit of a crisis – everyone's watching you know how is the boss managing this like are they they working around them or are they just oh what a nuisance they haven't come in what are we going to do so you can imagine you can sort of build a mentally healthy workplace culture which is sort of what we've been trying to encourage and a lot of modern workplaces are doing this and here's the rub there's two things firstly there's big study by PricewaterhouseCoopers, and they found out for every dollar that you're spending on making the workplace more mentally healthy, ultimately you get $2.30 back. And you might go, oh, that's magic. How does that happen? Well, people go off on uh, sick leave less. You have less what we call absenteeism, uh, presenteeism. So that's where you come to work, but you're not really doing very much. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing is they have a lot less sort of mental health claims, you know, for bullying and discrimination, stuff like that. So I think what we're seeing is workplaces now are saying, hey, this is serious. This is like when we got on the, on the wagon about, you know, preventing back pain on your computer and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so anyway, that's... Some of my thoughts, I think things are moving in a good direction.
0: Grant, what you've just said has has really inspired me because with stigmas and misconceptions, I think sometimes you just have to go against the grain to turn it around. Just being honest instead of using the "it just is not the right time excuse can really turn a stigma around, I reckon. And If you don't mind, Grant, look, I I think I'd like to share something personal with you. As some of you may know, I have autism. I'm on the spectrum. I'm an Aspie. It's traditionally known as Asperger's. But I also suffer from a condition called Generalized Anxiety Disorder, GAD. I've struggled with anxiety my whole life, but I've never really told anyone until now. I've got GAD. Never said that out loud before, Grant, but here I am. I've had a great life. I've got a wife, two kids. I've worked in commercial radio and TV, still work in radio. I have a successful podcast. I love my life, but you know, I live with anxiety, GAD. And I hope by talking about it, other people will get to know themselves better and understand that there's nothing wrong with owning it, owning your challenges. So Grant, I'm a white male. Is anxiety more prevalent in a particular age group or class of people?
1: Well, it's amazing. And look, good on you, Ron. You're obviously comfortable in sharing it and, and I think it does help people because they think – oh, he's this, you know, successful radio guy and, and he's he's cool with it. And uh, because in my Beyond Blue role, I'm often working a lot with different sections of the community, you know, like footy players and, uh, you know, rugby players. And recently I spoke to some senior musicians. You know, it, you start to realise it's just part of being human and, you know, it doesn't impair you from having a fantastic life. And, and, and I think – the important thing is getting some good help with it, which you've obviously done so. Um, the other thing I think to say is people in the arts in particular, like the music, broadcasting, uh, and I, I work in an area of Melbourne called St Kilda where we have, you know, a lot of people from the sort of creative industries and it's very, very common for them to be having some sort of mental health issues and often say to them, I say, you know what, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed blessing because often the very sort of creative, intelligent people, they've got a lot going on in their mind and it can sort of overshoot sometimes it can, and they sort of learn as they get older to, to sort of manage things when they're overdoing it. Um, so that's quite a common phenomena that we see and the one that you talk about, GAD or generalised anxiety disorder is really common. I guess the other point I'd make, and you're a great example of it, is a lot of people with anxiety, if they're ashamed about it or they don't know what's going on and they don't get help, what we know from the research is people will tend to try and self-manage it, and that often involves drinking a lot of alcohol, sometimes drugs, and what we call sort of you know maladaptive things that in the long run they make it worse. Yeah. And that's I always think that's really sad because you know, if you go to a GP and you, and these days in Australia, you can get a thing called a GP mental health plan and go along to a psychologist that gets subsidised by Medicare. And you learn some uh, strategies to sort of manage your thinking when it gets out of hand you know, it works really well. The research shows us that it's highly effective. So, um, you know, I think it's great that people have a listen. And I advise people, if you're listening to this and you've been putting up with some anxiety, get on the front foot with it. Go and learn about it. You'll find once you talk about it that it's really common. And we've got great treatments that are really effective.
0: Absolutely. And, and for me, it was a team effort between a GP, clinical psychologist, and a psychiatrist. And for me, It really helped. In the end, it uncovered a superpower that I have that helps me creatively. And it also gave me reasons to look at my life. Okay, great. For starters, I should stop doing things that don't make me happy because they will create anxiety. Instead, I'll do things that make me happy. And secondly, when I exercise and I push through the I couldn't be bothered thoughts, I end up feeling amazing after exercising. And I think everything you say is super important if you feel it. Why live with it? Just talk to someone about it, and I hope this conversation will help people. Now, you mentioned a connection with arts-related people, creative people, and anxiety. But is there an urban-rural play in anxiety? Is it, does that contribute?
1: The thing is, it's so common. It actually is in all communities, so rural, remote, urban. You know, people of different ethnic backgrounds. It's pretty ubiquitous in, you know, men and women. It's extremely common. Um, so we do see it. Um, you know, throughout the community. There's a couple of risk factors. We know that it tends to run in families. So when I'm sitting there as a GP and I go, oh, yeah, how's your sister, how's your parents? And they are oh, you know, yeah, mum was a massive worry She, she, uh, you know, I'm sure she had some sort of anxiety issue. She never told me about it. But, you know, so there there is a little bit of sort of genetics in this as well. The other thing is if you're having anxiety symptoms. It's really worth going along to the GP because very often they manifest with physical symptoms. So the common thing people get are like a a racing heart, like palpitations or sometimes chest pains or dizziness. And the important thing I'm always telling my medical students is, Yeah, don't miss a physical disorder and say, oh, that's anxiety, right? You know, patients will come in and, you know, if it's an old person in particular, we want to make sure their heart's all right and young people, you know, do a blood test, make sure there's a hormone called thyroid, and sometimes that can get out of whack. And so that's why I think a GP is a pretty good place to start just to sort of get a bit of perspective and make sure there's nothing else going on. You know, some of the young girls who are vegetarians, get low blood count and that can make him pretty dizzy and things. And so sometimes it's an issue of dealing with a physical problem. Um, But then for the vast majority where it is, you know, we think, nah, this is anxiety. As I said, these GP, GP mental health plans, great. The other thing we ought to mention is for some people, not for everyone, if it's more severe, we do have medications that can help. And there's a range of those and we're pretty careful about those and You want to chat to your GP, make sure you've got one that suits you if that's what you're thinking about.
0: And it's certainly something that's been offered to me and not something I've tried at this point. I've just managed it in a more natural therapy level, which has been really helpful for me. Again, this is the point of the conversation. I think there's people out there and everyone is individual and everyone is different and everyone experiences things differently and therefore there's no use just thinking, toughen up, I'll be right. You're better off actually going to people that can talk to you and help you and manage you on an individual level. And maybe it's the same as the conversation I had with Aspect on autism, but anxiety like autism seems to be receiving more attention, more coverage than ever before. There seems to be more stories about it in the media. Why do you think this is?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I think a few things. So first of all, we do know from sort of recent research that anxiety is being diagnosed more often, particularly in young people. You know, we do a lot of work in schools and with young people. We've got a big program that runs in the schools called the BU program, which is like training for teachers and things like that. And I think it's true. You know, our young people are got living in an incredibly sort of stressful environment at the minute. You know, the, the social media pressures and all the complications that that involves is a really big social experiment. And a lot of these kids are are getting very stressed. Some of our big surveys, we're not sure if it's going up in the community or if just people are being diagnosed with it more and being talked about more openly. Um, But, you know, I agree with you. It's it's definitely much more of an issue. One thing that your listeners might appreciate is our Beyond Blue website has got a stack of information. We get 12 million people a year coming to it. And there's a checklist on there, an anxiety and depression checklist that you can do privately. You just fill it out, gives you a little bit of feedback. And that can be pretty useful to say, well, hang on, i just got everyday stress or am I going into sort of the land of anxiety condition sort of things? Um, so that's really helpful for people, I think, as well. The other thing we've been working out really hard with kids in schools, and I think people generally is... What we call you know building resilience like how do you bounce back a bit when you're getting some of these knocks in life and and um you know there's another area that i think is really important i've actually
0: used the beyond blue resources quite a bit i think they're great and with the way anxiety can manifest to be honest with you grant sometimes i feel a bit guilty like i'm i'm going to pass it on do i have a choice yeah. What effect am I having on my family, on my wife, on my friends? You know, from your point of view, how damaging can anxiety be not only on those that suffer from it, but also their family and the wider community?
1: Yeah, so I think in general, you know, it doesn't harm anyone else. Um, it's, you know, something that I think friends and family can be really helpful with. And I think getting some facts straight is really useful. Sometimes, particularly if you're dealing with like an older person with a sort of an old view of anxiety, you might print up a fact sheet and say, "Now, look, it's a real thing. This is what I'm doing. Um, The other thing which I think is really important to mention is not everyone wants to go along to their GP or in the first instance. So they should know we've got a 24-hour phone line. Um, that people can ring are one 224636. So that's in Australia only. Um, but the other things we've got a forum, which you know more than a million people are on this sort of online chat, and that's actually a moderated forum. So it it cuts out any sort of you know troll stuff or inappropriate comments. And there's you get on that not with your real name, and you can chat about all sort of different themes. And the last thing I wanted to mention to you is there's a stack of brilliant sort of online treatments in a way for anxiety. So um, I'm a big fan of one called Mood Gym and another one called My Compass. And these are brilliant. You actually get on, again, with um, Anonymous, you just put a pseudonym, and you work through you know, hey thinking about things and how hey, could think about it differently and hey can challenge yourself a little bit. So some of these online treatments uh, are being shown in the research to actually be very effective.
0: And I think that's fantastic and because it's such an an individual thing, it's really great to try different things. For me, sometimes it's just a matter of slow deep breathing, you know, in for 6 seconds, hold for 6 seconds, out for six seconds. A few small, what can seem like ridiculous things, can actually have a big impact on your well-being when you're feeling anxious. And when I talk about damaging, and obviously you see it every day, and it's different for everyone. I think people that don't suffer from anxiety or don't know much about it maybe think you know you're just a worry wart or you're just an anxious person. You know, but the effect anxiety can have on a person is more than you know they're just a worry wart or they're just a bit anxious. It can really manifest in different ways. It doesn't have to be a panic attack. For me, does my amygdala ever stop? I don't think so. So you know, you can be constantly mentally tired. I mean, I can essentially be a caveman 24/7. As you know, as in I never stop thinking about am I going to be attacked by a woolly mammoth kind of thing, yeah, you know, so to speak. Kind of what I'm feeling sometimes. So the effect it can have on people. It really is more than just they
1: worry a bit. Absolutely. And and one of the other things I say to the many people that I see who've experienced anxiety, and, and as you say, there's other types. You know, some people have obsessions, what we call OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, they have to go and keep checking things or washing their hands, very disruptive to their life. And another common version is social anxiety. And these people, you know, they really... You know, going out to a cafe and just sitting and having a coffee is a major undertaking. So, you know, I think that with regards to uh, anxiety, that the effects on people around you, it's great if your family or friends can sort of understand what's going on. But the other thing I say to people, when you've been through something like this, you're a hundred times more compassionate to other people. You get it. Yeah. One of your friends comes to you and you're just like, all right, I get this. I know this. And I think one of the messages which would be really nice for your listeners is they should feel really hopeful. Like you described the slow breathing thing, right? I do. I teach some of my patients who have been having panic attacks for years. They practice it for a couple of weeks and they're going – You've got to be kidding. Is that all I had to do to like bring my system down? You know, and then it becomes a great tool for them. And it is. Uh, It is. Sometimes it is. Yeah, you know, and they're like, oh gosh, that's awesome. The other thing that's really popular, and you know, whether or not you've got, got anxiety condition or not, mindfulness meditation has become increasingly common. Um, As a technique, you can get heaps of apps. I really like the one called Smiling Mind, um, but there's heaps of them. And you practice the uh, meditation in the morning. You don't have to spend ages. You might just do 10 minutes. And this teaches people to just slow their thinking down a little bit and just reconnect their mind back to their body. Because, you know, we have very stimulating sort of visual sound environment we're all living in at the moment. You know, the bandwidth of stuff on our iPads and phones is, you know, massive. Absolutely. And so, just, you know, just being learning how to hang on, I'm just going to turn it down and listen to the wind again and feel my, you know, my body sitting in the chair and all that sort of stuff really helpful, really worth having a go at if you're experiencing anxiety.
0: And for people that come to anxiety with no real insight, what would you say are the warning signs to look out for, for a potential sufferer or their family or their friends?
1: Well, I think the first test for me as a GP is a really practical one. And I'm like, is this interfering with your work? Is it interfering with your relationships? Or other people will say, listen, I'm working and my relationships are fine, but I'm exhausted because I feel like I'm battling these sort of anxious thoughts all day and it's it's really starting to exhaust me. So there are a couple of things I get. Avoidance is always a bit of a uh, red flag for me. So people say, oh, you know, look, I, I, I don't really want to fly to Sydney. I don't like being on the planes or I don't really want to go to that party because, uh, you know... It's sort of awkward. I don't feel confident talking to anyone. So, you know, when they're starting to shrink their comfort zone of their world, that's another little red flag for me. The other one I mentioned is using alcohol to try and self-manage because we've got much better ways of managing things than, than drinking. And that has its own sort of momentum of problems that develop. The other sort of just really obvious one that people forget is they come in the clinic sometimes and they're having anxiety and go, yeah, you drink coffee and they're like, yeah, about six cups a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's probably not helping, you know. <laughs> um, you know, just watching the caffeine levels, a bit um, people not sleeping because there is this sort of. Overlap between anxiety and, and depression, you know, people paying out on themselves, being really hard on themselves. We ought to mention, since we're talking about mental health issues, that if people are feeling really desperate, like I mean, you know, getting to the point of thinking of harming themselves or taking their life or something serious like that, pretty important. You've got to go to your doctor or you can ring Lifeline anytime in Australia, 13114. We've also got an excellent free app from Beyond Blue called Beyond Now for people who are having suicidal thoughts, and we launched and about 80,000 people downloaded it. And it's um, you put in there all your reasons to live and what to do when, you you know, you're starting to feel really down about things. So that's at the more extreme end. You know, there's many, many people with anxiety who aren't having suicidal thoughts or anything. But if you are, you know, get help, ring the number, maybe download the app and and take it seriously.
0: Absolutely. Now we live in a pretty fast-paced, modern digital world, and that's great. It opens up things like podcasts and they say it makes the world one community, but it also isolates the world, you know. How has our fast-paced, modern, digital way of life played a part in the rise of anxiety?
1: Yeah, look, we don't really know all the research yet. So some of this is just anecdotal. And, you know, my experience as a GP and as a person, you know, I think if an alien came down to the world and got on the trains or something and saw thousands of people just glued to their screens, mindlessly flipping, <laughs> you know, they would go, what happened? <laughs> and, you know, so it is a big social experiment. I think, you know, we know there's highly addictive aspects to social media. The people that make it are not silly. You know, they know how to make it most addictive. Um, and, and there is an actual uh, sort of medical aspect to this. Is we do get a little squirt of dopamine, almost like someone on a like a gambler on one of those gambling machines, like a pokies, you know, where you look and you go, oh, got lots of likes, or you know, you're getting these sort of intermittent little rewards all the time. Absolutely. And you know, I, I think it's not written yet how addictive it is. I think particularly for schools, and you know, there's been a bit of debate about well, hang on, is that a good thing. Now having said that, you know, it's not all bad. I, I think there's some great, you know, Beyond Blue's got a huge Facebook following and it's a great place to get information and people, uh, you know, can convey their stories. So I think it's it's how it's used. But I think um, my impression is that for people with you know, overactive mind, over anxious. I'm really encouraging them to have a bit of screen-free time. So for a start, they can plug in their phone outside their bedroom at night so they're not sort of flicking through the phone 2 o'clock in the morning. I think, you know, it depends how far you want to go with it. Some people are getting a bit more into digital minimalism and taking some of the socials off their phone, just putting it on their computer or their iPad or something. So, you know, you can play around with what works for you. But, um, yeah, huge social experiment. I've no doubt that it's contributing to some of the sort of overactivity and um, anxiousness going on. And, you know, it sounds like old-fashioned, but I think making sure that you're getting outside for an hour a day if you can, ideally, getting some fresh air. Uh, You know, I myself like to go down to a beach or a park and, just be away from all the digital stuff, give your brain a bit of a
0: break. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I'm a big fan of going to the beach. My whole life, the beach, the coast has always had a relaxing, calming effect on me. And you talked a bit before about the idea of anxiety in workplaces. Do you think employers carry any responsibility in the improvement and deterrence of anxiety-related workplaces and cultural environments? In other words you know, finding people that are good at a job and then helping them with their challenges.
1: Absolutely. I really think things are moving in a good direction. And there's multiple reasons why. So, you know, with a more cynical view, you know, people on boards are asking their CEOs, you know, they're looking at rates of absenteeism. They want people coming into work. It's in the business interest to have people functioning and happy at work. You know, the last thing they want are, you know, claims against... The company for bullying or discrimination or anything like that. On a, on a sort of more compassionate side, we know that young people in particular they really rate um, how mentally healthy a workplace is as a big factor when they actually go for a new job. And and it's a bit of a challenge, I think, for workplaces to really recruit the best talent now. You know, and and it's a pretty mobile workforce. And if if you've got um, you know, obviously people are concerned about income, and that's usually at the top of the list. But I think second comes in: does this look like a decent place to work? Is it? Are they going to, you know, do I like the mental health culture? So more and more we're seeing that this is being taken on for companies or even small businesses who are interested in: well, how can we make our workplace a little bit more mentally healthy? We've got some terrific resources on the Heads Up. Website, which you can just get to through the Beyond Blue website. And there's booklets and videos and all sorts of things. But just to give you a little bit of a sense of what do you do, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, speaking openly about mental health issues. Make sure your managers have got some basic mental health skills. There's great, like, short courses, like two-day courses that managers can do called Mental Health First Aid, and then more generally, as a business or as a company, have a look at the workload that you're giving people. Like, can they actually deliver what you're asking them to do? If you want to make someone stressed, like overload them. Don't give them the tools. Don't give them the help. They will get very stressed. And I see that at the clinic. And, and then you've got a problem. You know, they might go off on stress leave or they leave. So it's a real, um, it's a fine art, I think, for employers, but I think it's changing.
0: It's a great point about workload and I can really relate to that. But now I'd like to ask you about the importance of talking about anxiety openly. And the reason why I ask is, as you know, I've worked in radio all my life and I've noticed a few radio networks in Australia and New Zealand have staged men's health campaigns, which I think are absolutely fantastic, so good, and and they should be congratulated for it. From memory, one campaign even included Beyond Blue, and in essence, the campaign was no talking, so no announcers, no shows, no ads, just music, and the kind of promotion of talking about men's health issues. Well, firstly, I think it's absolutely fantastic that large commercial networks are using their airtime, their precious airtime, to promote such important issues in the community. But my own personal opinion... And maybe it's different because I suffer from anxiety. I don't know. But it's frankly, I think it's the wrong way of going about it. It would make far more sense for the announcers and the station personalities to spend the day only talking to people about men's health issues. Because I think conversation breeds conversations. Talk breeds talk. And conversely, silence breeds silence. And Worse still, silence breeds stigma and misconceptions. So, how important do you think talking about anxiety openly is for inspiring and educating the community?
1: Yeah, what a what a great question. Look, I think there's a few aspects to that. So, certainly, um, with Triple M and Oz, Oz Stereo um, Beyond Blue had a campaign recently, uh, a No Talk Day. And you're correct, and and you know it was sort of Eddie McGuire and Will Anderson and all these sort of characters saying, "Listen, we're not going to." Talk today. We're just going to play music because we want to try and create a conversation out there. I think the important thing is that was coupled with a lot of talking as well. So it was sort of like a, you know, a media stunt to a, a point to try and raise the issue. But we had a new podcast and I was happy to go on it um, with some uh, Brendan Favola and Will Anderson called uh, What's Your Problem? which was really interesting. We had such an open chat. We did three podcasts about, you know, mental health amongst sports people and and how they deal with it. And keep in mind as well, we know that the guys in particular, you know, there's certainly a higher risk, unfortunately, of suicide, um, but also they're much more reluctant to go to the doctor, much more reluctant to talk about mental health issues. So when we get, you know, a triple M or a real sort of um, a platform that's really got the ear of the big sort of footy community, that's worth a lot, And uh, but I hear your point that, you know, I think, Not talking in and of itself probably doesn't solve the problem.
0: I I wholeheartedly agree with you. I I applaud Triple M for the initiative. Well done, Triple M. Well done, Beyond Blue. I guess, though, in the end, we're basically saying men don't talk about men's health issues. So to highlight and address that, we're not going to talk. To me, that sounded strange and, and kind of counterproductive. But again, well done to Beyond Blue and Triple M for highlighting such an important issue. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'm just having a look. You know, I think Eddie McGuire's little sort of meme is, we aren't talking so you can. So, you know, it's sort of like a marketing thing. Yeah. But I fully agree. I think the message is very much, yes, talk, talk about, <laughs> you know.
0: I really hope this podcast inspires people to talk more openly about anxiety or, or any mental health condition. Now, aside from seeking advice from your GP, which I think is is key, it's your first step. What other resources would you recommend to those interested in learning more about anxiety or, or seeking help?
1: Yeah, so when you think about it, there's so much information out there now. So as you say, you've got your GPs and your clinical services and speaking to a mental health specialist, and that's a really good track for a lot of people. Before that, you, know, you might have a look online, look at Beyond Blue. There's other websites out there that are very good. Headspace, great for young people. Black Dog also has some excellent sort of mental health materials. So make sure you're looking at some good quality material. If you want to engage a bit more, maybe get on the phone line we talked about or get involved in one of the forums. And also, don't forget there's some great online materials, you know, Mood Gym. The other thing people might be interested in, there's this great little free app called WoeBot. W-O-E-B-O-T, it's amazing. It's just like a little artificial intelligence thing, but you just chat to it like you're texting with someone. It's private, and it's sending you relevant videos and comments, and And there's a, a study of it done in young people in particular that it helps reduce their anxiety. So there's a stack of resources out there. I guess what you don't want to do is – you know, be embarrassed about go, I'm not going to tell anyone, I'm going to use alcohol to try and manage it, or I'm just going to stop doing things that are stressful. That's They're all sort of more counterproductive things. So we sort of want to try and avoid that.
0: Again, I really do hope this conversation has inspired people to open up, to talk about it, to seek help. I just hope this podcast has helped people, Grant. I really do, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been a fascinating chat with some great insights. I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful for your time. And I hope you've enjoyed it too.
1: Yeah, good, good on you with your show, Ryan. And, and I, I have enjoyed it. And I think, you know, you've got a fantastic commitment to this area. And I have no doubt there'll be some people listening and they'll go, ah, right, okay, this is really common. I can get some help on this. This is great.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. See you, mate. My guest was Dr. Grant Blaschke, GP and the lead clinical advisor at Beyond Blue. Intensely Inquisitive. And thank you for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way through learning new things or inspiring you to learn more or simply sparking interesting, deeper conversations. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you, so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook or go to orionkelly.com.au. That's O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, please message me or post it on the Orion Kelly Facebook page or leave me a message at orionkelly.com.au. Until next time, keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook.